Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I am your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are talking about the video game series, Psychonauts. You will find yourselves on the path to becoming international secret agents. In other words, Psychonauts! This video game series came out in 2005, and the sequel was actually released just a few months ago in 2021. So I'm going to do this first episode about the first game. And next episode, I'll talk about the second game and about how I think the the game has evolved in the way that it portrays mental health and psychological concepts. And if you couldn't tell from the name Psychonaut, this game is right up the alley for this podcast. It's based on a lot of concepts about how the brain works, uh, a lot of fun symbolism that we can get into in this episode. And so I thought it would just be a really great uh, topic to cover on the podcast. Plus, I just finished playing the series a few weeks ago, so it's fresh on my mind. So the premise of the game is uh, imagine that there was a government agency like the FBI, but it only solves crimes related to psychics. And in order to solve these crimes, the agents have to astrally project into other people's brains and make sense of the mess in there. That's the gist of the game. Now, if you've listened to my Halloween episode about parapsychology, you may have heard me talk very tangentially about astral projection, uh, as this is a topic usually covered in parapsychology. So we're already starting from kind of a far-fetched place with the premise of the game, but I would like for you to suspend any disbelief you have because it is a video game, uh, and I think a lot of the symbolism is, is does a good job of storytelling, even with some of the, the out-there concepts. So this game uses uh, classic spy tropes and aesthetics, and much of the game has like a 1960s, 1970s look to it. The spies are all kind of like vaguely European, uh, and the game was actually inspired by the show The Man from Uncle. So if you've ever seen that, that's kind of the aesthetic vibe that we're getting from the game. Now, Canonically, apparently the game takes place in 1982, so the Psychonauts seem to be about a decade behind, (laughs) Um, but that's okay because their fashion is on point for cartoon video game characters. (laughs) So again, I'm going to talk about the first game, which came out in 2005, in this episode, and next week I'll cover uh, the second game, which was just released. So the basic plot for the first game 
uh, again, takes place in 1982. We follow our main character, whose name is Rasputin. My name is Rasputin, but everybody calls me Raz. On his quest to become a psychonaut. So Raz is 10 years old and an acrobat, and he runs away from his acrobat family to join the Whispering Rock Psychic Summer Camp, which is sort of like a training recruitment camp for young psychonauts. So he's escaped from the circus, he kind of crashes into the camp, and wants to start his psychic training. But the camp counselors, who are the actual psychonaut agents of the organization, they call his father and tell him he can't train because he doesn't have his parents' permission to be there. Um, so they tell him and they they tell him that they're calling his father and Raz is really concerned because his father apparently hates psychics and would be very disappointed that Raz ran away from home to go to this camp. And he only has a few days until his dad is going to get there and so Raz is determined that he'll go through all of the training and become a real psychonaut in only a few days. As Raz is going through the trainings, he realizes that something fishy is going on at the camp, and the other children who are at the camp with him are showing up without their brains, which is a big deal if your whole job is going into other people's minds. Uh, And, you know, children shouldn't be walking around without brains. Uh, He learns that one of the main spies, one of the camp counselors, whose name is Coach Oleander, has been plotting to steal the brains of other psychics to power these psychic tanks he's designed so he can take over the world. Coach Oleander has employed a demented dentist called Dr. Lobato uh, to get the brains out of the children by giving them sneezing powder and then inserting them into the tanks to get them to work. Uh, Raz has to fight his way both through a lake and an abandoned insane asylum to confront Coach Oleander and ultimately defeat his own inner demons. So that's the plot of the game in short. Again, if you haven't played it, spoiler alert, uh, if you have played it, I hope I did a good job summarizing it and reminding you. Um, There's obviously a lot more content and I think this is the hard thing about doing video game episodes is it's really hard for me to do a good synopsis because it is a piece of media that takes like minimum 20 hours to get through so there's a lot of story Um, but I do really want to more focus on like the symbolism in these games and how they communicate psychological concepts and whether that's a good they could do a good job or not instead of focusing on the plot so I'm going to leave it at this kind of general outline. Um, I am going to talk about a few different characters because of the things they represent in the in the video game. Um, but if you haven't played it, I would highly recommend playing it. I had a blast playing it, even though the first one is pretty old and was a little clunky to use <laughs> when I was trying to play it on my computer. Um, but it was super fun. It's It has a really interesting art style. Um, I'll try to post pictures on the sources page on the website so you can get a little taste of the the art style. I think it's really funky. It is really this like 60s, 70s aesthetic, but also this kind of odd cartoony style where like most of the characters are like blue or purple, uh, like very over the top. Raz has like a giant head. <laughs> uh, it's, I think it's really cute and it's really interesting and it keeps you 
engaged because of like how bright and, and colorful everything is. I also want to point out like just from this basic plot, we already have some interesting symbolism or like double entendres. So like I mentioned, the kind of the bad guys of this game, Coach Oleander, he his name is a reference to a plant called Oleander, which is actually a poisonous plant. So little hint there that he maybe wasn't going to be a good character from his name. He's named after a poisonous plant. And then Dr. Lobato, his name is taken from the word lobotomy, which was a very primitive kind of psychosurgical intervention that was used before psychiatric medications were invented, which involved taking an ice pick and severing uh, a portion of the frontal lobe, which was not very effective in treating mental illness, but was very effective in making people with mental illnesses kind of docile and zoned out. Because when you sever the frontal cortex, it takes out a lot of the executive functioning and like motivation to do things like that's the part of our brain that does planning so when you kind of knock that offline people have trouble planning and kind of getting the motivation out to do things so they become very like essentially sedated by their own brain um and so dr lobato's name is a reference to that in some of the backstory uh that the video game creators had that there's reference to dr lobato being given a lobotomy as a child because he had psychic powers so that's also a kind of a reference to his history but even f- even from like the names of the characters we're already getting sort of these double meanings you can see how this game is like a very rich uh t- kind of tapestry of symbolism and things to to analyze so now we know what the psychonauts do the basic concept of the game is about jumping into people's brains and kind of dealing with the mess or mental block that needs to be cleaned up in order for the person to either help you out in the game or kind of move on to the next story point. Um, And each brain that you enter into with Raz has its own unique symbolism to represent what the person is going through. Some of it represents trauma, some of it represents just like mental turmoil or things like anxiety or obsessions. There's lots of very interesting symbolism to to portray these things. So I'm going to highlight some of the characters that I think had the most interesting brains. So like I mentioned in the plot, one of the settings of the game is an abandoned insane asylum and it's kind of the last uh, staging area of the game before you figure out or, or battle Coach Oleander and Dr. Lobato. And unfortunately, some of the patients from the asylum have been left behind and Raz has to go into their minds to kind of help them out to move on to the next piece of the story. One of the patients that's he, that he meets is a woman called Gloria Von Gauten, who is a former actress who suffers from severe mood swings and delusions. She represents... A couple of things. One, she represents this idea of an inner critic or negative self-talk. And she also represents the idea of idealization and devaluation. Devaluation. So what are those? So inner critic or, or negative self-talk is the way that we kind of internally talk to ourselves. So kind of that running dialogue you're having with yourself throughout the day. Self-talk can be positive. It could be things like, I'm going to do good at this job interview. Uh, I'm really 
happy about the choices I made with my outfit, like things that you're telling yourself that maybe you're proud of, or even that you're accepting of, like, you know, maybe I, I am having a bad day, but I think that I can turn it around or at least I can get to the end of the day and go to sleep. That That's self-talk. Self-talk can also be negative. Things like, I don't like who I am. Maybe those memories of like, why did I say that to somebody? Why did I make that joke or that comment? All of that stuff would be negative self-talk. And we can also label that your inner critic. So the, per- the, the self-talk that you're doing that's very critical of yourself, putting a lot of judgment onto the things that you're doing throughout your day. And the reality is, is that we, we probably all do negative and positive and neutral self-talk all throughout the day. The issue is, is that if we're only doing negative self-talk, that has a really big impact on our self-esteem and our ability to kind of move through the world. So that's one issue that Gloria is dealing with. The other one is this idea of, this idea of (laughs) idealization and devaluation. So another way to think of this is black and white thinking. So idealization would be idealizing somebody, thinking only the best about them, that they're all good, they've never done a bad thing, they can do no wrong. That would be idealization. Devaluation is thinking that someone is all bad. They've only ever done bad things. They can't ever get it right. They're a failure. They're a bad person, blah, 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 right? And so obviously we can't do either one, right? To idealize someone to that extreme means that we can't give them constructive feedback. We can't kind of hold when they make a mistake. We're going to only see them as good and anything they do that counteracts that is going to be kind of off-putting. We also can't devalue everyone. And if we only see the negative or the bad parts of someone, then how are we ever going to get along with them? And we kind of are dismissing them by just saying, well, this it's because they're a bad person or whatsoever. And so that's something that Gloria is going through as well. And, and we'll talk a little bit about it as well. When we first meet Gloria in the asylum, she's outside kind of like in a greenhouse surrounded by plants that she has painted faces onto as if they were an audience. And she's kind of performing and we, we realize that she's probably an actress or a singer or something. And she's where she is, there's a light over her. And so when she's in the light, she's very sweet, maybe too sweet. She's like very adoring. Uh, when Raz interacts with her, she's like wanting to help him. And he, he is trying to get a trophy from her because he needs it for a later part in the game. And she's like, oh, let me tell you all about my trophy. And the second she steps out of the light, toward where Raz is standing into the the shadows or the darkness, she immediately has a flip and becomes very aggressive, very bitter, and she's suspicious of Raz, accuses him of trying to steal her trophy, and essentially runs him off. And so that is the kind of like the mood swings that Gloria is suffering from, and it's triggered by moving from the light to the dark, kind of her light side and then her dark side. So this would be her idealization in the light, She's all sunshine and butterflies in the darkness. She's all anger and revenge against whoever's standing in front of her. So Gloria's backstory, which we learned through playing her level, is that she was sent to a boarding school as a young child and separated from her mother. She was like devastated by this and we sh- she was kept apart from her mother by her mother's boyfriend. After she's in boarding school, she becomes very famous actress as an adult drives a wedge in between her and her mother who have now reunited as her mother was also an actress and is incredibly jealous of Gloria's success. Um, So the two have drifted apart in adulthood and Gloria like leaves to go to Europe to go on tour 
And as she's on tour, she finds out that her mother has died by suicide. And Gloria feels immense guilt and has kind of a traumatic response to this, blames herself for her mother's death. And this leads to her developing her inner critic, which paralyzes her ability to perform ever again and lands her in the asylum. So that's where Raz is finding Gloria. So when we go into Gloria's brain, it looks like a massive stage. So it's like a huge playhouse. There's a stage and a play looks like it's supposed to be happening. The stage manager comes up to Raz and tells him, well, the show is falling apart and I can't get the muse uh, Bonita Soleil to come out and perform. And the show uh, won't get good reviews from the critic if Bonita Soleil doesn't come out. And this is also when we see that there is a representation of a critic inside Gloria's mind. And his name is Jasper. And he's like this big, super mean guy who's, uh, you know, constantly criticizing everything that's happening on the stage. Um, and this is kind of just a really clear representation of how Gloria has been shunning her talent due to her fear of criticism in that her internal world is matching kind of her external experience and that she kind of shut herself off from an area in which she was talented and, and where she liked to perform uh, because she was so terrified of criticism. But the most powerful criticism was coming from within her, not necessarily from like audiences or actual critics. Um, so your job is to convince Bonita Soleil, who is this like, looks kind of like Gloria, has the same hair as Gloria, but kind of looks like a butterfly glowing creature. <laughs> uh, your job is to convince Bonita to come out and perform in the play. And so you have to go through a series of sets on the stage and eventually you have to fight the critic. But all these sets on the stage are different versions of the story of Gloria's life. So uh, Raz can switch between the happy mood and the sad mood. And then the actors on the stage perform the play again, depending on which mood he set it in. So when he's put it in the happy mood, uh, the play is the idealized version. So in this version, Gloria's mother did nothing wrong. Uh, Gloria had a happy time at her boarding school. Like nothing, there's no conflict, nothing going wrong in the happy version of the play. In the sad version or the bad version, uh, everything is going wrong. Gloria hates her school. And these are all childhood memories, by the way. It's like the, the play is supposed to be her, her like her childhood. Uh, she like hates her mother. They're very strange. She never talks to her. Uh, it's like kind of like the worst parts of her background are being shown in the play. And so that's, again, this like really clear representation of idealizing and devaluing past memories. So if you think about how you look back on your past, we all have a tendency to do this, right? Like you may have friends or you may be this person who says like, I had a perfect childhood, like nothing ever went wrong. And that's probably not true. Like you probably got grounded or got disciplined by your parents at least once. <laughs> like you probably didn't get everything you wanted or needed. There were probably things that didn't go the way that you wanted them to go at some point in your past. So it, it wasn't all perfect. And you may also know people or be that person who says, my entire childhood was a disaster. I never got anything that I wanted. Like, it, it was horrible, right? And although it probably was bad if you're, you know, at that point where that's what you're thinking, there also were probably moments where it wasn't all bad and maybe you did get what you needed and you, uh, like, learned from your experience, right? So it behooves us to have a more balanced 
perspective on our past to be able to know what to learn from, what to grow from, and also to be able to appreciate the, the good moments. So your uh, Raz is like meddling essentially in Gloria's memories, mixes up the mood lighting and ends up on the final play, which is a combination of the good and the bad, like the sets. So it's a combination of the moods. And that after he fixes that and defeats Jasper, Bonita Soleil is able to come out and the final uh, play is performed to like a standing ovation. And that's kind of the sign of like Gloria has not only been able to balance her memories and be more like realistic and in, in how, how she remembers her childhood, but she's also been able to defeat her inner critic so that she's not harping on those memories and saying you could have done better uh, or you're not grateful enough. Kind of that would be both sides. So Gloria had a lot <laughs> to, to fix, right? She had a lot to deal with in her brain. But I really do like the imagery of, first of all, the inner critic being an actual critic. And even the symbolism of the critic in the game is kind of like an oversimplified version of it or kind of like taking it to the extreme. Like true critics of who critique media have balanced perspectives, right? They, they know what to praise. They know what to critique. They know how to balance the good with the bad, the strengths with the weaknesses. And Jasper, the critic, only sees the bad, is only looking at weaknesses, and is constantly picking at them, picking at them, picking at them. And if anyone listening, which I'm sure is all of you, <laughs> has ever experienced like being in that frame of mind where you're just like, everything you do is wrong. You're always kind of picking at yourself, putting yourself down. It's really hard to get out of that state of mind. And sometimes I do wish maybe someone could jump in there and knock that, that critic out of the way. Um, but we can see how kind of feeding the critic, like allowing Jasper to grow and become kind of the, the presence that he becomes uh, would be really damaging and would make it really hard to fight back against because you've spent all this time feeding into this critic, how are you supposed to stop it now? It's kind of, it gets to a point where it's grown out of control. So I, I liked that imagery and I thought the, having the childhood memories be like a play was an interesting way to look at memory as when we pull up our memories, we are kind of experiencing them like you would watch a show, right? Like maybe a play or a movie, we're experiencing them in this kind of passive way where they're playing out in front of us. But I don't think we always realize how we are flavoring or coloring the memory with our emotional state. And this comes from like research on how memory is very fickle. <laughs> like your own memory is, is very easily tampered with. And so every time we call up a memory, we affect it and we store it in its new format. And so when we call it up again we're remembering it from the last time it was altered. So take, for example, Gloria remembering being at her boarding school. If she's pulling up the memory of being at boarding school and she's in a negative frame of mind, it colors that memory negatively. So that when she stores it to pull it up again at a later time, it's already been kind of coded in a negative bias. Same if she pulls it up in a positive state of mind, she is seeing it through a positive lens. So then storing it, re-encoding it through a positive lens. This is all like a very simple <laughs> outline of this stuff, but this is kind of what the research has shown about memory is that every time we retrieve or kind of call upon a memory, bring it back to our, the forefront of our consciousness, 
we impact it. We tamper with it. Something about it may change, whether it's the emotional flavor of it, the valence of it, or even little details. And this is why eyewitness testimony is actually not very reliable because it's easy, easy, easy for us to change our memory. And you can test this out for yourself. So go ahead and think of your drive to, maybe you went to work this morning. Think about the drive to work and the car that you parked next to in the parking lot before you went into like your office or your workplace. What color was the car? What type of car was it? There's no way for us to know what really the color of the car and the type of car was because whatever you thought of just now is going to become the memory, regardless of of if it was true or not. So for example, I could have said uh, there was a red Camry on one side of me and a blue truck on the other side. But the reality could be that there were no cars. But just because I prompted to think about what color car was next to you in the parking lot, your brain filled it in with a detail. Even if maybe there, that wasn't true, maybe it was an empty parking spot next to you. So memory can be kind of fickle. It doesn't mean that you can't trust your memories and that like the bulk of what you remember isn't true. It's just some of these little details or even just like the kind of the lens through which a memory is looked at is is really susceptible. And, the, and Gloria's mind in the Psychonauts game is a good example of this, of how she was able or she was putting like a pretty intensive emotional valence filter on her memories where the reality was really something more in the middle. And by kind of clearing out her inner critic slowing down and being able to balance her memory, she got back to the reality, which was a mixture of good and bad things happened to her in her past. So that's Gloria. And after you help Gloria, she is able to walk between the light and the dark without having a mood swing. And she seems a little more stable as we leave her. Then the next uh, patient that you encounter in the asylum is uh, a gentleman named Fred Bonaparte, and he was actually an orderly at the asylum until his Napoleon complex took over. And it's a Napoleon complex because he's a direct descendant of Napoleon Bonaparte, hence his last name. Um, But I thought this is a cool time to talk about the Napoleon complex. La, la, la. the Napoleon complex and uh, what that what that means. Now for Fred, he's a he's a man of opposites. So whereas Napoleon was famously a very short man, Fred is a very tall man. Napoleon was quite stocky. Fred is very lanky. Uh, Fred also is not very competitive. He doesn't seek glory or conflict, which would be the opposite of his like great 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 grandpa. Napoleon, right? Famously seeking glory, uh, seeking conflict. <laughs> um, so Fred represents this kind of like Napoleon complex. So what is the Napoleon complex? And I wanted to see who came up with it. And it seems like results are inconclusive. <laughs> so the actual origins of the term Napoleon complex are unknown. But most researchers seem to agree that it's most likely just another term or highly related to Alfred Adler's inferiority complex theory. So Alfred Adler was a psychodynamic uh, theorist who kind of wanted to put out ideas that were different than what Freud was using at the time. So he pioneered a term he called individual psychotherapy, which focused on internal and external focus uh, factors, 
in contrast to Freud, who focused on internal only. So Freud was all about like unconscious or subconscious processes, what was going on inside the person's mind. And Adler wanted to also focus on that, but also acknowledge that sometimes things going on around the person influences their behavior as well. We're not just purely in a vacuum reacting only to our own like thoughts and internal processes with that we are reacting to the world around us. So Adler wanted to kind of open up this idea of what influences people's behavior or causes the psychological distress that they may be experiencing. So he had this idea of inferiority leading to uh, overcompensation and that when people feel inferior, they not just compensate for an area of inferiority, but they then go above and beyond in overcompensating. And he used an example from ancient Greece (laughs) of this person named Demosthenes who had a stutter and not only worked to overcome his stutter by speaking more clearly, but went on to become a famous orator. So chose a profession in which he would pretty much only be speaking publicly. And Adler used this example to say that this was what an inferiority complex would look like is that the the person continues to work to replace this inferiority and that even when they overcompensate by let's say becoming a famous public speaker they the feeling of inferiority does not go away so they have to continue to keep striving and that's in a sense related to what then we would call the Napoleon complex which is typically seen as being someone who is physically small or short overcompensating with a very big personality. So maybe being very domineering or aggressive. And so with Fred Bonaparte in this game, he is the opposite of his ancestor Napoleon, who was, you know, a short man. Fred is a very tall man. Napoleon is wanting to represent kind of this aggression, maybe this domineering attitude, whereas Fred is quite docile and gentle. And so his mind is at conflict with balancing kind of the, I guess, genetic memory of Napoleon Bonaparte with who he is as a person. Um, And we learn in the game through one of the in-game mechanics called vaults, where you can unlock people's like repressed memories that Fred's uh, Napoleon complex came out when he was playing a game of checkers against a patient at the asylum and he was losing over and over again and he his he kind of had like a break where Napoleon (laughs) took over uh, and in his mind Fred and Napoleon are arguing over Should you be trying to win all the time? So that was kind of like the inciting incident was Fred playing this game of checkers and never winning against a man with a mental illness as well. And so Fred's brain uh, is set up to look like kind of like a game of risk or like a, a tabletop game where you would be moving pieces around and having to have like a certain amount of resources in order to build a bridge and vice versa. And so the goal is to move Fred's pieces for him into the castle, which means he would win the game. And we're told when Raz enters Fred's brain that he's been playing this game with Napoleon over and over again and he's never won. And Fred has kind of given up. He doesn't really want to try. 
he's not really motivated. He doesn't see the point in winning. Uh, and Napoleon is like adamant that Fred needs to learn how to like honor his heritage and like win for the Bonapartes, um, which is funny because Napoleon is actually quite famous for losing. And so I thought this was interesting, uh, an interesting representation of this in that it would be more accessible to Fred, who is like a modern day person, this kind of like game setup versus like an actual battlefield. Um, and that the two of them kind of playing with these pawns may actually, I think personally, kind of represent the way that the actual Napoleon was like making decisions that put people's lives in danger all in the sake of maybe fueling his Napoleon complex or his inferiority complex. Um, and that, that it's represented as kind of these pawns in a game that seem to be meaningless, right? That they, they're just game pieces, right? They're just little wooden pieces with fake villages. But Raz kind of goes into the game board and realizes that all of the game pieces he's talking to are like real people and they have thoughts and feelings and needs, which really highlights kind of this idea of like war is not a game, right? It may seem like it is from one point of view from the people who are not on the ground actually fighting um and for the people who are on the ground being impacted by the war it's not a game it's it's their real life um and so I thought that this was an interesting way to kind of portray this this conflict and this inferiority complex was in a game which on one level seems to be quite silly but then the symbolism of it of it is that people do play games with other people's lives, right? When we're talking about big, big structural things like war. Um, and, you know, it is, it is a silly video game. <laughs> uh, and I understand that the wooden people in the video game are not real people. But it, I think it is an interesting point that kind of got slipped into um, this part of the game. And it's not like explicitly dealt with, but you do see throughout the throughout this section that Raz is like interacting with these little game pieces and having conversations with them and they talk back to him and clearly appear to be like real people in this world. Uh, and so Raz helps Fred, you win the game Through, throughout Raz kind of pushing Fred along. He starts to buy in more. He's like ready. He's motivated to win and, and ready to help Raz. Um, and when you win, Napoleon kind of concedes and tells Fred, like, okay, you get to be in control of the mind again, um, but I will be here. And kind of like, a, again, like with Gloria, taking a more balanced approach of, like, you don't have to be docile and, like, conflict-free all the time like Fred was before, but you also don't have to be, like, domineering and aggressive like Napoleon was. There's there's a balance and ways in which Fred can assert himself like maybe you don't keep playing the checkers game <laughs> if you're losing and not having a good time. Maybe you walk away or ask to play a different game rather than like sitting in there kind of slamming your head against the wall. So Fred is able to kind of reconcile his ancestors frame of mind with his own. The last mind that I'm going to talk about belongs to the third asylum patient whose name is Edgar Tegley and he is a velvet painting artist who is obsessed with bullfighting. So he can't finish any paintings without unintentionally drawing a bull over the painting. So he kind of represents obsession and he also represents unrequited love. 
And the reason that Edgar is obsessed with bullfighting is that in high school, he was a wrestler who I think his name was like the bull or something like that. And he was in love with one of the cheerleaders. They were going to go to prom together. And then she lost interest in him and started dating another high school student who I think was also a wrestler. And Edgar was like broken by this and it kind of became a formative memory for him that he couldn't move past. And in his mind, it became this story of uh, a beautiful lady trapped in his mind while a reckless bull kind of rampages through the city and keeps knocking over the tower of cards that Edgar is building to get up to where the lady is trapped so that he can rescue her. Uh, And there is a matador somewhere in his mind who represents the other boy who's trying to steal the glory of stopping the bull and saving the lady from Edgar. And as you move through the level, you realize that Edgar is actually the bull who's on the loose. And it's his anger and obsession over this event that turns him into, I guess, like a rampaging animal <laughs> um, in his own mind. And But he is so unaware that this has affected him so much. And he's made the story into... Uh, like such an important moment that it's taken on this like very serious life-threatening undertone. So that's Edgar's deal. (laughs) Um, I actually really like the aesthetic of his uh, level because it's like all black velvet paintings uh, and his character is actually named Edgar after um, the inventor of American velvet painting. The whole level is just kind of like super bright colors with the dark, uh, kind of filling in around the colors. And it's all in this like kind of Spanish style of art. There's painting dogs for some reason. (laughs) Uh, it's very cool. I think this is my, my, this was my favorite level, like design wise. Um, and you know, Edgar really does represent this idea of kind of like, you know, the, the phrase, the bull in a china shop, right? Like a like single-minded bent on destroying everything, unable to kind of calm down and be gentle. And I think that's kind of what Edgar's mind is representing is that he's so single-mindedly focused on getting this girl back, even though the reality is that they were ch- children <laughs> and she just wasn't that into him. She She moved on and it wasn't like the most dramatic heartbreak, you know, I'm sure it was very hurtful at the time, but it also isn't the end all be all because Edgar was only a teenager and he had so much of his life ahead of him. But he unfortunately hasn't been able to live his adult life because he's been kind of stuck in the past like a bull trapped in a china shop, destroying everything around him because he's just stuck in this one memory. And we see the evidence of that in kind of like outside his mind is that every painting he's made um, is ruined. He he ruins it. He destroys it by painting a bull over it, even when he's trying not to. Um, so it, the, in this one, Raz's goal isn't to necessarily defeat the final boss because he realizes that the boss of the level is actually Edgar himself, but rather to defeat the idea <laughs> that Edgar has about this past event and kind of show him the reality of it so that Edgar can deal with his life in a different way and deal with this memory in a different way. 
Um, and honestly, when I was first playing through this level and realized like kind of what was going on and what was the, um, the reasoning behind Edgar's mind being in the place it is, I honestly was thinking of the idea of like an incel online, like the, so if you've never heard of this before, it stands for involuntarily celibate and has become a space, has become spaces on the internet where people kind of wallow in a bitterness about being single and not having um, anyone who, who seems to want to have sex with them. And rather than engaging in behaviors that could better their lives or change their situation or even just accepting their situation, it becomes a very like negative online space and everything becomes about typically blaming women for not wanting to have sex with typically men who are, are on these forums. Um, and it made me think of like how for those people who are on the internet kind of engaging in this like kind of downward spiral, kind of hateful <laughs> spiral, um, there's probably a moment in their past that they're stuck on in the way that Edgar was. There probably is a memory of maybe a rejection by a man or a woman or a, a person that they thought would be like a sexual or romantic partner or even not a true rejection, but a perceived rejection. And that, that kind of like little kernel of corn <laughs> is in their teeth, right? It's agitating, right? If you've ever had something stuck in your teeth, you know what I'm talking about. But just that feeling of like this one little memory that in the grand scheme of things, it probably was painful at the time, but is not the end all be all, just like what happened with Edgar. But because of the focusing on it and the the just like myopic, view of it and going over every detail and trying to constantly make that memory to fix it right of like seeking out places to not be rejected um like an internet forum uh it it turns into an issue that's bigger than it ever was and it turns into this belief that like i'm unlovable i'm disgusting i'm i'm whatever that the original event wasn't actually communicating but the focus on this one tiny little thing kind of evolves into it. And so that's what I thought of when I thought of this level. And I think maybe incels are are an extreme example of this, but I think this was a, a relatable level of thinking about like, what are some tiny memories that maybe we relive and we make a big deal out of them. And then by making a big deal out of them, we remember them differently. And much like with Gloria's level, right? the kind of emotional context that we're remembering these things in frames the way that we store them and recall them uh, next time we bring them to the front. So that wraps up basically everyone who was at the asylum. There was another There was another character who was at the asylum, um, but his mind is really weird and <laughs> I think too much to go into right now. Um, but if you played the game, you know who I'm talking about with the milkman. Um, yeah, there's a lot there that I don't think will fit into this episode. But the last level that I want to talk about is actually the final level of the game. So again, I'm going to throw out a little spoiler alert, spoiler alert if you don't want to have the end ruined for you yet. Um, but the end of the game, so Raz has defeated Dr. Lobato. He's kind of figured out and confronted Coach Oleander. Uh, he's done this essentially on his own as the other adults had been captured. Uh they think that everything is fine. Coach Oleander, th- there's like a big explosion. The tower at the asylum collapses. They all make it down safe. 
Coach Oleander emerges from the rubble and he has no brain, much like had happened to the other children. And most of the main characters kind of laugh it off, but Raz is like, uh-oh, if there's no brain in Oleander's head, where is it? And just at that moment, a giant psychic tank bursts out of the rubble and we see that Coach Oleander had put his brain into the tank in sort of like a last ditch effort to maintain his plans. It knocks out everyone else except for Raz and you're left to fight this tank again. And in the process of fighting the tank, Raz tries to actually project into Coach Oleander's brain and ends up their minds kind of mix. So it's like a it's like a little mind meld. <laughs> so the final level is a combination of Raz and Coach Oleander's mindscapes. And the ultimate thing that this shows us is that both of these characters have issues with their fathers. They have daddy issues. <laughs> um, so Oleander's father was a butcher. So his contribution is that there's just meat everywhere. Like everything is made out of meat. And Raz's father is an acrobat, so the setting is like a circus. So there we have a meat circus, which is, it's it's gross. It's really quite gross. And not just I don't eat beef, but just it's a lot of meat and a lot of circus music. Uh, so that's the last um, the last level that, that you're fighting through. And Raz encounters child Oleander in his mind and realizes that Coach Oleander's primary trauma is a memory in which he as a young boy had pet rabbits and his father, the butcher, ground them up for meat in his butcher shop, which I would say, as a, especially as like a little kid, that would be incredibly traumatic. Um, and like, I honestly, I think a little bit abusive coming from the father, especially in the context of like, Oleander seemed to be a, a lonely little boy and the pet rabbits were kind of like his only companions. Uh, he, he didn't have any siblings. He just had his rabbits and then for his father to ugh, grind them up. Gross, right? So that's that's the kind of core memory that's represented in the final uh, level is that we see child Oleander c- trying to rescue these bunnies from his father who is represented as kind of like a huge, huge, like hulking man with big butcher knives. So first, Raz has to battle Oleander's dad. So he's primarily experiencing Oleander's core memories. He has to fight uh, the, the giant butcher man. And as he has finished defeating him, uh, a representation of Raz's father arrives, who is... Is, so, where Oleander's dad is, like, big and hulking, Raz's dad is, like, little but lithe. So, he's, like, because he's an acrobat. And he's running around. And um, Raz's family has had a curse put on them that they are cursed to die in water. Um, and the reason why raz's father hates all psychics that is that it was a psychic who placed this curse on the family this becomes a bigger issue in the second game so we'll talk more about it in the next episode next week but this is um part of why the level happens is that raz is fighting this kind of mental representation of his dad of someone who hates psychics and is kind of overly critical of raz and the level is filling up with water which communicates kind of implicitly, well, not, well, I mean explicitly, that Raz's idea of his father wants to kill him and kill him in, in a way that is very specific to Raz's family. And 
again, this is Raz's mental representation of his father. And we kind of get from this level the sense that, like, maybe their relationship is, like, quite estranged. Maybe there's some, you know, other things going on um, that Raz sees his father in kind of like this very kind of scary and a violent way. Um, Throughout the level, someone in the distance can be heard calling Raz's name. Turns out it's Raz's real dad, who actually is a psychic and like breaks in and is able to join Raz in his mind and give him support and helps him defeat the two dads. The two dads end up in this like horrible (laughs) combined monster that Raz like absorbs energy psychic energy from his real dad so that he can fight off this like amalgamation and the battle ends and Raz learns that his dad doesn't hate psychics um and that he had this idea of his father in his mind that was based on them not communicating well and so it is kind of nice that it's revealed that Raz's dad isn't like a horrible abusive monster that it's just an issue of communication but I think it also illustrates how um children can form ideas in their minds of the people in their lives and are responding to that idea in their mind and not necessarily the real person in front of them and this is actually something that comes up in attachment theory which I know I've mentioned over and over again because it's my favorite theory Um, but in attachment theory there's this an idea of something called internal working models and so an internal working model of your attachment figure is essentially an internal representation of the person that you are constantly building on, right? So every interaction you have with them is changing how you construct this model and your reaction to the internal representation you have of the person influences how you interact with other people. So in this case, you know, Raz has this idea of his father being like quite aggressive, uh, quite punitive hating psychics and Raz has been reacting to the world in this way of internalizing the idea of like people hate psychics and people are violent and this has contributed to him becoming kind of this scrappy young man who uh you know kind of gets thrown into like a lot of fights he gets thrown into a lot of conflict I mean the whole game is (laughs) based on fighting right (laughs) it's a video game um but this internal working model that Raz has is not necessarily the reality of who his father is, but is based on their level of communication with each other. And because they haven't been able to be open with each other about Raz's psychic powers, because Raz was told that he shouldn't have those powers, was told that they're bad. So he never told his father that he had them. And so there was never open communication. And the only message Raz ever had from his father was that psychics are bad and they've cursed our family. So he built this internal working model off of those few conversations they've had about the topic. And it's not until he's able to learn from his dad that actually psychics are okay. In fact, I am a psychic that he can, uh, start to build a different working model of his father. Um, and so that's the the game ends with like ultimate dad battle, right? Which I think is a lot more of kind of a a classic psychoanalytic, maybe even Freudian look at mental health of like it all comes down to daddy issues. I will say it is nice that 
it didn't all come down to mommy issues because that's really the classic stereotype is that we can blame our mothers for everything that's ever gone wrong with us. So at least psychonauts blames the fathers. Um, but it is, again, a little bit more of this maybe old school understanding of mental health, um, kind of putting everything in perspective based on early childhood experiences. And not to say that that's wrong. And I think that's sometimes an approach that I like to take as well when working with patients or, you know, talking about like psychological or psychoanalytic theory. Um, But it's also not necessarily where the field is nowadays. And so uh, the shift will happen in the second game to a different way of kind of conceptualizing mental well-being and, and psychological concepts. So this game, although fantastic game. I really did love it. I think a lot of it is centered in this daddy issue. Like, I just, there's nothing else to say but daddy issues. Uh, centered in this idea that like whatever our parents have done to us has like drastically changed our lives and kind of sets the course for our upbringing. And the real- reality is, is that even as adults, we can have life-changing experiences that uh, happen to us in adulthood and, and change the course of our life. And there are other factors like external factors, relationships that we have, biological and genetic underpinnings, like all of these things come together to kind of inform how we go through the world and how our psyche constructs itself. Uh, and that's more clear in the second game. So I like that the games evolved in their view of mental health and psyche. Um, I think it also reflects how the field of psychology continues to evolve. And as we learn new things, we incorporate new conceptualizations into our theories. And so Psychonauts 1, for me, is kind of like reading Freud or even reading Adler and seeing these theories for what they are and their limitations, but also appreciating kind of where they've come from and what they've contributed to the field in general. Um, And just to wrap up, the game in general has some other kind of cute symbolism or symbolic representation of things. Um, For example, in the game, you have to collect things called figments, which represent like figments of imagination. And they're kind of like these line drawings so that they're not really filled in. They're not really part of the game environment. Um, They stick out and you collect those to like level up. There's also mental cobwebs in the game that you have to buy a special little vacuum to suck them up. And these usually block like secret areas or items. And they just kind of represent like when we have the feeling of like cobwebs in your head, right? It like maybe it's making it difficult for you to think through something or kind of move on, right? A mental cobweb kind of stops things up. So it plays that role in the game as well. There's also emotional baggage. So as you're going through the game, you'll see like these purses and duffel bags and they're like sobbing and you have to connect them with their um, luggage tags. You have to reunite them essentially with their buddy uh, to kind of sort them, sort out the emotional baggage and uh, get the sound to stop because otherwise it's just like this horrible crying sound the entire time you're playing the game. Um, And then there's memory vaults, which look like little... I guess they're like pigs. I don't know. They're little creatures that run around. And when you find them, you have to whack them and they pop open like their safe opening. And then you unlock like a secret memory from the person's mind that you're in. So all like every little piece of this game kind of represents these little ideas about the brain. And I will say in Psychonauts 1, sometimes I think that 
they're a little bit disconnected that you know there's there's fun little symbolism things there's the emotional baggage there's each of the brains have these little um you know unique aspects that represent the person's mental issue or you know psyche issue uh, but it's not necessarily like a cohesive narrative or a cohesive understanding of the psyche and I think that's where the second game really improves in showing how although everybody's brains are different there are a lot of things we have in common and there are these underlying reactions to interpersonal difficulties or conflict um, across the characters but of course I'm going to get into all of that in the next episode which will be all about Psychonauts 2. As always I hope that you were able to learn something from this episode and at the very least I hope I've inspired you to at least check out Psychonauts and see if you're interested in playing it yourself. Um, But thank you for sticking with me. Uh, I will see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com or click the link in the show notes. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you and see you in the next episode.